everyone, and welcome to the October 17th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal has given the go-ahead for a class action lawsuit to proceed against a hospital for overcharging for providing a patient with her medical records. Here's what happened in the published case of Nicodemus versus St. Francis Memorial Hospital. Kristen Nicodemus was admitted in 2011 to St. Francis Hospital for treatment of injuries sustained when she was burned. Later, she engaged an attorney to represent her in a potential lawsuit. This attorney sent a signed authorization to the hospital and asked them to provide copies of her medical records. The request was sent by the hospital to a company called Healthport, who provided the hospital with patient medical record release of information services pursuant to a contract. Healthport sent the attorney a California Agent Free Information Sheet and an invoice. The invoice charged fees that were higher than the California Evidence Code Section 1158 allowed. Evidence Code Section 1158 requires medical providers to produce medical records demanded by patients prior to litigation in a timely fashion and at a reasonable cost. Plaintiff's attorney paid Healthport's invoice in full, but noted on the check memo line, under protest in violation of California Evidence Code 1158. He later filed suit alleging causes of action for violation of the Evidence Code 1158 and a violation of the unfair competition law and moved to have his lawsuit certified as a class action. But the trial court denied to certify the case as a class action and Nicodemus appealed. The Court of Appeal reversed in the published decision. The common question in this case is the application of Evidence Code Section 1158 to Healthport's uniform practices in response to attorney requests for medical records. The fact that each class member ultimately may be required to establish his or her records request was submitted before or in contemplation of litigation does not overwhelm the common question regarding those uniform copying practices. Therefore, the trial court erred in denying to certify the class action. And now our crime report. Defense giant Northrop Grumman has signed a nearly $92 million contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to build the second phase of a computer system that's currently focused on reducing fraud. But down the road, the computer system will play a greater role in anticipating beneficiaries' medical disorders. It is the most prominent example of how public and private insurers are spending millions of dollars on big data. They are using advanced technology to predict people's future health care needs based on their interactions with doctors, hospitals, and pharmacies, as well as information gleaned from other social media, and other sources. Such systems are known as predictive analytics, and they aim to make healthcare more efficient and effective by opening the door to addressing medical issues before they become serious problems. The system is about creating a comprehensive approach to using medical information, but the experts say that the trade-off is to say goodbye to individual privacy. 
Medicare's contract with Northrop Grumman is one of the largest efforts underway to create a healthcare crystal ball capable of looking into the patient's futures. Medicare has been criticized in the past for using a pay-and-chase approach to fraud, that is, paying all 4.5 million claims that are submitted daily and then attempting to determine which ones may have been bogus and trying to then reclaim the funds. Medicare says the first phase of its Northrop-designed fraud detection system produced more than $1 billion in savings over the last two years. And Northrop Grumman claims that it is clear that sophisticated algorithms are the best way to spot and crack down on fraudulent medical claims. They're capable of sifting through millions of submissions and recognizing signs and patterns that indicate a claim may not be on the up and up. The next step will be using big data capabilities to get ahead of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries' health care needs. A West Los Angeles man who is the owner of a medical supply company has been sentenced to five years in prison for his role in a scheme that fraudulently billed more than $4 million to Medicare. 44-year-old Valerie Bagamalni, who lives in Westwood, was also ordered to pay nearly $1.3 million in restitution. Bagamalni was found guilty by a federal jury in November 2015 of six counts of health care fraud. He used his company, Royal Medical Supply, in the Beverly Grove district of Los Angeles to bill the $4 million for power wheelchairs, back braces, and knee braces that were medically unnecessary, not provided to beneficiaries, or both. He also created false documentation to support his billing claims, including creating fake reports of home assessments that never occurred. Power wheelchairs were delivered to beneficiaries who were able to walk without assistance. He signed documents stating that he had delivered equipment when in fact the equipment was never actually delivered. The U.S. attorney said that his company, Royal Medical Supply, was a complete fraud. Most of the prescriptions were issued under the names of doctors either associated with or the victims of fraud, and most of the patients never received the equipment. The FBI and the Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General investigated the case, which is brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. Farid Fatah an oncologist in suburban Detroit, is now serving a 45-year prison sentence for fraud. He ordered lifetime chemotherapy with all its adverse effects for patients whose cancer was in remission. And perhaps worst of all, Dr. Fatah ordered chemotherapy for patients who never had cancer but believed that they did because of his fabricated diagnoses. Fatah was taken down by a team of Department of Justice prosecuted, prosecutors who included Geja Gobina. Besides personally tackling cases such as Dr. Fatah's, Gobina headed the healthcare fraud unit of the DOJ Criminal Division, overseeing the prosecution of close to a thousand individuals across the country. Bringing Medicare fraudsters to justice earned Gobina a number of honors, including the Award for Excellence from the Office of Inspector General in the Department of Health and Human Services. He was recently interviewed about his work and said that 
Medicare is under full assault by fraudsters. Gobina said that the most common factor causing a tiny minority of physicians to break bad is financial difficulty. Sometimes it intersects with another factor, which is age. He said that when you have a doctor in a tough financial situation toward the end of their career, participating in these schemes gives them a way to make some money very quickly. Oftentimes, it is personal bankruptcy or someone who's been married a couple of times, got divorced, and has various alimony or child support obligations. No particular type of physician shows up disproportionately in these fraud schemes. No particular medical specialty is any worse than any other. And in some cases, you'd have physicians working for non-physicians. Until the last few years, the vetting of people who could open a clinic open a health care agency was not as strong as it could have been. CMS in the last few years has really stepped up its efforts to screen potential providers, and CMS does criminal background checks now. When the, the, he first started prosecuting cases, he saw people running multiple clinics with no medical background. In certain regions, CMS now puts freezes on the ability to open up certain types of services. For example, there has been a freeze in Houston, Texas, on ambulance companies for a while. There is rampant ambulance fraud in Houston. So, they're freezing the number of ambulance companies that can be signed up as Medicare providers. There are now freezes on home health care as well in Houston, South Florida, and Detroit. In Michigan, it was very easy to open a home health agency if you were a fraudster. Home health agencies were popping up all over, and statistically, it did not make sense when you looked at the population that was involved. There are also instances where physicians were recruited into pill mills and to do the bidding of people who had gangster nicknames and guns. The physicians were pressured and sometimes bullied to keep up a certain level of prescribing and not make waves. Gobina said that there are instances where doctors get into a scheme and then they cannot get out. They may not want to prescribe the amount of Oxycontin or fentanyl that they're prescribing, but it's often difficult to get out when the owner of the place is a hardened criminal. He says that many criminal practices employ patient recruiters who offer people fast food, cash, or some other kind of benefit to visit a medical office and receive services. They would recruit in low-income housing and soup kitchens, offering $50 to $100 to anyone who had a Medicare card to come to the clinic. The recruiters would coach the patients based on instructions from the owners. The recruiters would get paid by the owners of the clinic. Govina concluded the interview by saying, It takes a village to build a fraud. And in regulatory news, the California Department of Insurance has awarded nearly $35 million in grants to 37 district attorney offices representing 44 counties across California to combat workers' compensation insurance fraud. The grants are funded through employer assessments and support law enforcement efforts in investigating and prosecuting workers' comp fraud. Workers' compensation insurance fraud includes medical provider fraud, employer premium fraud, employer defrauding employees, insider fraud, claimant fraud, and the willfully uninsured operating in the underground economy. 
These cases, when successfully prosecuted, help level the playing field for honest businesses and discourage future fraudulent activity. Grant funding is based on assessments from California-insured and self-insured employers. California district attorneys apply for workers' compensation insurance fraud grant funds. The commissioner's panel reviews the applications and makes funding recommendations to the commissioner based on multiple criteria, including past performance, the county's problem statement, and their program strategy for the upcoming year. The panel makes a recommendation to the insurance commissioner who either accepts or amends the panel's recommendation. The commissioner's recommendation is submitted to the Fraud Assessment Commission for their advice and consent, and then the grants are awarded. And about $20 million will be allocated to Southern California counties. Los Angeles County will receive nearly $7 million, San Diego over $5 million, and Orange County will receive over $4 million, as well as Riverside and San Bernardino counties about $2 million each. A new report from the National Academy of Social Insurance says that workers' compensation benefits as a share of payroll are reaching historically low levels even as employers shoulder more costs. Until 1995, the Social Security Administration produced the only comprehensive national data on workers' compensation benefits, coverage, and costs dating back to 1946. The Social Security Administration discontinued the series in 1995, and the National Academy of Social Insurance assumed the task of reporting national data on workers' compensation in 1997. The Academy published its first report that year and has produced the report annually ever since. The 19th annual report of the National Academy of Social Insurance on workers' comp benefits coverage and costs is now available. It says that despite growth in employment during the economic recovery and the corresponding uptick in employees covered by workers' comp, benefits per $100 of payroll fell from $0.97 in 2013 to $0.91 in 2014, the lowest level since 1980. Benefits as a percent of payroll declined in 46 states, continuing a national trend in lower benefits relative to payroll that began in the 1990s. Costs to employers, on the other hand, continue to climb. Employer costs associated with workers' compensation, such as insurance premiums, reimbursement payments, and administrative costs grew at a rate nearly five times faster than benefits. Nationally, employer costs exceeded total benefits in 2014 by $29.5 billion, while costs per $100 of payroll reached $1.35. The ratio of benefits paid per $1 of employee costs has varied over the last 20 years, from a high of $0.82 cents in 1999 to a low of $0.63 in 2006. Declining levels of workers' compensation benefits could mean that workers are getting injured less frequently or that they are returning to work sooner when they do get injured. But there have been a number of changes in state laws in recent years limiting access to workers' compensation benefits, which may also be a factor. 
The Oregon Department of Consumer and Business Services announced the results of its biannual nationwide study of the costs of workers' compensation programs for 2016. It surveys insurance regulators and workers' compensation rating bureaus in each of the 50 states plus Washington, D.C. for rate information. According to the study, California once again is the worst state in the union in terms of costs. It ranks at 176% of the study median. And that is a good distance away from the second highest state, New Jersey, which ranks 158% of the study median. Rounding off the worst five, the third worst is New York at 154%, Connecticut is fourth at 149%, and the fifth is Alaska, also at 149%. On the other end of the spectrum, North Dakota was the lowest cost at 48% of the study median, followed by Indiana at 57%, Arkansas at 58%, West Virginia at 66%, and Virginia at 67% of the study median. Workers' compensation costs are not the only indicator of concern. California also has the distinction of being the absolute worst in other areas of importance to business. Between 2008 and 2015, at least 9,000 companies have left California for a better business environment, according to a 378-page study published by Spectrum Location Solutions. And the 2015 Chief Executive Magazine Annual Survey of Business Climates was completed by 511 CEOs across the United States. States were measured in that study across three key indicators to achieve the overall ranking. And for the 11th year in a row, Chief Executive Magazine found California to be the worst state for business in 2015. And in medical news, medical causation is always a big question in an AOE-COE investigation. And according to a new study, intense physical exertion or extreme emotional upset can each trigger a heart attack, and the risk may be highest if the two are combined. This was the largest study exploring this issue, and unlike previous studies, it included people from many different countries and ethnicities. The association between triggers and the onset of heart attack was similar across all locations. The researchers used data from more than 12,000 cases of first heart attacks in 52 countries recorded in the InterHeart study. After the heart attack study, staff asked patients if they had been engaged in heavy physical exertion or were angry or emotionally upset in the hour leading up to the heart attack and in the same hour on the previous day. Almost 14% said that they had been engaged in heavy physical exertion, and 14% said they were angry or emotionally upset in the hour leading up to the heart attack. Being <clears throat> angry or physically strained through roughly doubled the heart attack risk. If the two factors were combined, heart attack was about three times as likely. But the researchers did not explicitly define the terms upset, or exertion for patients who decided this for themselves. In terms of heart attack triggers, there was no difference between those with and without diabetes or high blood pressure. 
The researchers concluded that everyone can benefit from keeping their tempers in check and when angry, and it's not a good idea to throw yourself into extreme physical exercise. And another new study explains another way that hospitals can make you sick. The study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association claims that if the previous occupant of a hospital bed received antibiotics, the next patient who uses that bed may be at higher risk for a severe form of infectious diarrhea. Colostridium difficile, or C. diff, diarrhea causes 27,000 deaths each year in the U.S., and hospital patients taking antibiotics are particularly at risk for this infection. Antibiotics disturb the normal healthy bacteria of the gut, so a C. diff infection can take hold. The new study shows that antibiotics given to one patient may alter the local microenvironment to influence a different patient's risk for C. diff infection. Other studies have also demonstrated that antibiotics have had a herd effect. In other words, that antibiotics can affect people who do not themselves receive the antibiotics. Researchers studied more than 100,000 pairs of patients who sequentially occupied a given hospital bed in four institutions between 2010 and 2015. More than 500 patients, or less than 1% of the total group, developed a C. diff infection as the second bed occupant. The infections were 22% more likely when the previous uh, occupant had received antibiotics. Other factors about the previous bed occupant were not associated with C. diff risk because people can be carrying C. diff organisms without having any symptoms. When these colonized patients received antibiotics, C. diff may expand within their gut microbiome and start shedding more spores. This means more spores on the bed, the bedside table, the floor, and other areas. The next patient who enters the room is thus more likely to be exposed to C. diff spores. It's not easy to sterilize the room or bed between patients because C. diff spores are extremely hardy. To be killed, they need to be soaked in a bleach-containing cleaning agent for an adequate amount of time. About half of the patients in acute care facilities take antibiotics on any given day. That's a huge portion of patients that could be involved in spreading the infection. But the increased risk is modest. There is a 22% relative increased risk for C. diff with the prior patient's antibiotics, but there was a fourfold increase in risk related to the antibiotics received by the patient him or herself. Other patients, such as other antibiotic user patients within the ward, could have contributed increased risk as well. Doctors and patients should avoid antibiotics in situations where they are not necessary. Experts say that too often antibiotics are prescribed without clear indications. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. 
Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly, and thanks for joining us today. So please drop by again next week for more news.